Welcome to the Celtic Way podcast, where we look to bring a fresh vision of spiritual life by nurturing a vibrant, evolving, and sustainable life with God in nature. Celtic spirituality is an ancient tradition of seeing God in everyone and in everything. In this episode, we have a conversation with Ben Soy regarding his work with the homeless population in the Denver area and how hospitality plays into that work. Ben, it's so great to have you with us this morning. And, you know, how long have we known each other now, Ben? It's been a year. It's been a year. Just one year. One year. All right. Well, it's been a great year. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I want our audience to get a really good glimpse of you, too. So talk freely a little bit about your life and who you are and where you work and all that good stuff. So I am Ben Soy. I am the, I, I work with volunteers at Mile High Ministries. And one of the main things that I do is I come alongside folks that identify as Christian and help them um, figure out what skills they need to take on and what postures they need to embrace in order to be a good friend to folks that are formerly homeless. Joshua Station, where I work, is a two-year transitional housing program for families that are that un- formerly unhoused. And one of the things that I realized is that church people especially white middle-class suburban church people, which is a lot of the folks that I work with, don't necessarily come naturally with the skill set to have an active cross-cultural <laughs> friendship. <laughs> and, and so polite. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, cultural hurdles that church folks, and I'm, I'm among them, uh, have when you come to a relationship with somebody who's different than you. There was this one moment when I was doing some work with some people who really struggled in life, and there was some normal white middle-class church folks who came down to our ministry that we had. We met in this refurbished garage, and they looked at me and they said, this is the type of church that Jesus would come to. And then they never came back. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's this, uh, I, I know a lot of folks in their, in their 20s and 30s who have high ideals for what justice and mercy and compassion and cross-cultural relationships is supposed to look like. And I also, through my work at Malheim Ministries, I'm in relationship with older folks who identify as Christian too. And there's there's this disconnect between what I know to be the ideal and what I actually want to give my life to and my rhythms to. And so one of the things that I attempt to do is through relationship, just give people a category for service, mission, whatever language we use Mm. is not this thing that we check a box on and like, remember that time where we went on a mission trip or remember that time where we went down and served homeless folks at Joshua station or, or whatever. It's a, it's a rhythm to embrace and it's a, it's a thing to embody. And it's a thing that you don't need a special service opportunity to do. But that's how I think about my work is like walking alongside folks that identify as Christian and giving them a category for like, hey, you you profess to value the greatest commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. And we all know that if you get back to as close as we can to like the original teachings of Jesus, there's like when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And when you when you love your neighbor, like, and Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? He says, it's the hated enemy, the person, that, the Samaritan, the person you don't want to be around, right? 
So I fulfill that role at Mile High Ministries and Joshua Station, which is our two-year transitional housing program for homeless families. But then I also I'm part time at a local church trying to do <laughs> trying to do the same work. I like it because I when I see you in your element down there, I like it because you're such a relational person. I, I think that's the vibe you bring with you everywhere you go. It's not just something you do at work. You just take it with you wherever you go. Speaking wherever you go, it's a fair drive from Aurora to Denver, from where I live, to go down to Mile High and, and yeah. before the pandemic, you know. I was pretty accustomed to where the homeless people were in Denver and about how many there were. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious enough to ask you about this, because now I, act, I literally have to take some different routes certain weeks, depending on, you know, how the city is. They move these homeless people from place to place over a period. Right time and i don't like it but it's what happens to those poor folks and gosh it seems to me like the homeless population has just grown i mean it's just do you have any idea about the numbers what's happening in denver yeah yeah so the community of unhoused folks has increased like two percent uh every year for like the last five years but I like to keep in mind that Denver's overall population has increased something like 14% over the last 10 years. True. And so the census is that homelessness is more visible in Denver than it has historically been. One of the things that I've learned in being in relationship with families, mostly moms with kids at Joshua Station, is that there's a whole world of visible homelessness which is typically we think about like the grizzled middle-aged man with a cardboard sign side of the road is the image that pops into, I think most of our heads when we think about a homeless person. Yeah. And that's, that is definitely more visible in Denver and in the front range. But what I've learned is that's like just the tip of the iceberg because there's a whole world of like families that are doubling up like eight people in a three bedroom home and teenagers that are couch surfing and a whole world of folks staying in extended stay motels on East or West Colfax. And so there's this whole world of what I call invisible homelessness that exists out there. That's really hard to quantify. It's like, we don't even know how to like put statistics to those people because they're on the fringes of society. They're not staying in a tent camp or they're not staying in an overnight shelter. Those who track homelessness numbers we can't really track those folks you know when i reflect back on my own story it's like after after dropping out of bible college um i spent some time uh, i spent some time like couch surfing myself and it was a very like i kind of spun it as like oh look at me being adventurous and countercultural and whatever I'm, I'm you know thumbing my nose at mainstream society by sleeping on couches or whatever but like it was actually a really fragile time for me a really tender time for me where if you've ever been a guest in somebody else's home you know that you are at their mercy and at their pleasure mm. and as soon as you become an inconvenience to your host, then it's really easy to kick someone to the curb. One of my theories on why our culture is broken and why we have an inability to like love and care for our homeless neighbors 
is really culture teaches us to value people that are useful or maybe like entertaining or fun, right? And as soon as someone stops being useful to you or they stop being entertaining to you, it's like you're slower to return that text message and that phone call. Yeah, I think an interesting thing about what you just said, Ben, is that once somebody is truly living on the streets, the ability to help them get back on their feet is so so unbelievably challenging. And the success rate in that space is so small. Mm. But I think if we could do a better job of identifying some of the people that you mentioned, the couch surfers, the several families in one apartment, people like that, often those groups. So I'm kind of separating different groups of people that don't have a physical address. But if we could somehow find ways to create relationships with folks like that, there's a much higher probability that we could, you know, get the help needed to actually get them back on their feet again, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it is important. We're doing a great job of identifying the people that are living on the streets and people living in homeless (laughs) shelters. But if we could also do a better job of identifying the people that are living in other people's houses or couch surfing, I think we would have a better chance because then there would be less of those people filtering into people living on the streets. You know, we'd be taking them in the other direction, helping hopefully through, you know, solid relationships and good, good programs. You know, when you mention relationships, this is something I've learned from Ben and I want you to tell our audience, Ben, what are some of the very root causes of homelessness that you've discovered? Well, so the way that we, I stole this from, our friend Jeff Johnson at Mile High Ministries, by the way. Uh, but the way that we talk about the causes of homelessness and the way that we sort of see the problem out in the world and in our city is uh, there's really three interrelated problems that we're fighting against. One is homelessness, which has its this visible and invisible manifestation. The second is unaffordable housing. We live in one of the most, becoming one of the most expensive cities to live in, in Denver. And anecdotally, my wife and I, when we first got married and we rented a little studio apartment in a hip urban neighborhood in Denver called Capitol Hill, in our studio apartment, our rent was $600 per month, which was a steal. I was going to say, that's a bargain price for that (laughs) neighborhood for that little place. Yeah. But that same unit, we looked it up on Zillow, and it's around $2,000 per month. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years later, with almost no, we, we like peeked at it. There's no, no one put in work. No one like renovated it. They didn't put in a new kitchen. It's just the, the market, they can get away with charging more. I should let you guys know that Wisconsin's becoming a little bit of a refugee camp from people leaving Denver, Colorado. I know several people who just said the cost the overcrowdedness of that area there. A lot of people are, I don't know why Wisconsin, but I mean, I've met several people that are in that same situation where that's going to be showing up there next summer. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to actually start promoting it through the um, department of tourism saying, if you don't like Denver anymore, come to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the, that problem not only affects double income, no kid families, like my wife and I, but it certainly affects the poor and the very poor, right? Unaffordable housing is the number one driver of homelessness by every survey we can manage. Colorado legalized marijuana a few years ago, 
And there's become this sort of myth that like, oh yeah, we have so many homeless because the legal drug use, and this is what folks want to do. And that's why they're homeless because they want to, they want to be addicts or whatever. And the statistics that I've looked up is it's actually only 28% of folks that are unhoused that struggle with drug or alcohol um, addiction. And the number one driver is unaffordable housing. People just can't afford to rent or to own in Denver, Colorado anymore. So we want to be aware of that problem. And we want to be a part of a movement of folks trying to solve the affordable housing crisis in Denver, Colorado. And then the third sort of underlying cause that we see, so there's you know visible and invisible homelessness, there's unaffordable housing. The third cause, and I really think about this as like the real underlying problem is social isolation. So Denver, Colorado, and this surprises a lot of people because Denver sort of presents as adventurous, fun. You come out here to have a really sort of cool experience in the mountains. There's uh, culture, there's art, there's music scene. But Denver is the third, lo- by a couple surveys, is the third loneliest city in, the, in America. Number one is D.C. Number two is Las Vegas. Number three is Denver, Colorado. Mm. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about like why, like what, what is even going on? And I think that Denver is a tale of two cities, right? There's folks that have grew up in Denver, especially communities of color in Denver, folks that have lived here for generations. You know, there's a lot of families that are of, uh, that are Latino that talk about, you know, the border crossed us, like parts of Colorado used to be Mexico, right? <laughs> so there's families that have lived here in Denver for years. And so there's one, Padre, you've, you've been in the Highlands, Northwest Denver. That used to be the Latino neighborhood right. in Denver. And now it's the neighborhood where all the white hipsters live. Yeah, it's the very hip neighborhood. Yeah, and there's there's beautiful ice cream and, and drinks to be had. I'm not going to say that it's bad, but you have folks that have historically lived in Denver, communities of color, that their neighborhoods are gentrifying, even if their family owns their property tax goes up based upon the housing prices in their neighborhood. I know many people who have been felt that they've been forced to sell because they could no longer afford their property taxes. And then if you're a lifelong renter, like I am, your rent goes up every year. And so you're where your communities were once tight knit and you lived in the same block as your cousin, your auntie, whatever. And in a day of trouble, you knew who was safe and who you could call upon. Those neighborhoods that were historically tight are dispersed. And, you know, families that lived in the Highlands are now out in like Montbello and Aurora and Green Valley Ranch and these suburban, cheaper uh, neighborhoods. So that's sort of the native, especially the what I've seen of my friends that grew up in Denver and their folks of color, what they've experienced. And so tight-knit communities are now dispersed. What I see among transplants is folks come out here. I moved out here to be my true authentic self. West Virginia felt oppressive to me. Like I was like, people are backwards here. I love West Virginia. I'm not trying to, this is me as a 20 year old being really cocky. I was like, those folks, they don't get me. I'm going to move to a place where there's vibrancy and there's culture and people want to be there. And it's an inherently individualistic frame to have about your experience because it's all filtered through yourself. And it's all filtered around 
when you meet someone in Denver, they very rarely ask what you do, especially a younger person. They'll ask, what's your thing? And what they mean by that is, what is your expensive, all-consuming hobby? Are you a, like, do you go to the climbing gym? Do you boulder? Do you ski? Do you snowboard? And especially if somebody moves out to Denver and they don't find a real community of people that like have their back, because it's really difficult to find steadfast friends. And with a lot of folks that are like, they're post-Christian, they're not necessarily going to go to a church community. Those normal historical sort of structures that we build community around just don't really exist for younger folks anymore. How do you build friendships? Well, it's folks that you work with or folks that you recreate with. Mm-hmm. So people that you feel the, the pressure to be useful to because you're at work and people that you feel the pressure to be entertaining to because you're recreating with them. If you're going through a time of trouble, like a mental health crisis or a breakup or a job loss or a crisis of faith or whatever like you're going through, it's really hard to pivot relationships where you're at work or at fun with into talking about the deeper existential terror that you're experiencing, right? And so it's a lonely city and folks present well on Instagram, like they're having a great time, but inwardly, I I looked up the statistics. This is nationwide. Um, Gen Z one in four contemplated suicide during the COVID year. Mm. Uh, Millennials one in five contemplated suicide during the COVID year. One of the key components to Celtic Christianity is hospitality. And I like, I really like the way you really talk about this because hospitality for me is totally relational, right? It's, it's, we are called to befriend people on the journey before crisis hits. This hospitality has to do about opening our attitudes and our minds and our hearts to other people. And I don't think that it's as closed here in Denver as it was in California for our experience. But like in California, you didn't talk to your neighbor because when they came out to get in their car, they didn't look at you. They would look away from you, you know. And here, at least we know the neighbors who are right around us by name. We talk to them. But downtown, and especially for your age group, boy, it seems to me to be exactly how you describe it. People who are really looking good on Instagram, but are crying inside for some really depth to relationship. And you're right. A lot of them have checked out of the whole Christian thing. And so there's this big old vacuum now that's really impacting people in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really why I, I really wanted you on today. And I, I really want to talk more in our next episode about mm-hmm. this. You and I talk a lot about scripture and the role it plays in our lives. And it may be different between me and you, but there's a lot of similarities that are the same. And there's no getting around it. The ancient Celtic Christian people, Scripture was at the center of just about everything they did and believed, right? So when we hit this topic again next week, I think some of our listeners are going to be like, whoa, we're just like beating the Bible here. What the heck is going on? And Well, that's what will be going on next week in direct relationship to this topic of hospitality and homelessness and the crying need that really comes from people's hearts that we express with thousands of people on the streets in Denver. And I would say too, Scott, this this idea of hospitality, and Ben, you hit it on the head too, is so important because I know in my life, 
There's been a couple times if I didn't have people to bail me out, I don't know how that would have went down. I mean, I'm just fortunate enough that I have, you know, family that is there if something like that happens. So you take that away, you strip that away, you strip friendship, you strip family away. I think there would be a lot of people in this country and in this world that would be in a whole lot of hurt if in those times of crisis, there wasn't somebody to pick us up because that's what we're here for. We're all supposed to be here to help each other in those moments. That's really the core of hospitality in so many ways. So I do think, you know, we do, we talk a lot about drug use. We talk a lot about mental illness when we're talking about people that are struggling in poverty. We don't talk a lot about this idea of hospitality and the ministry that I was a part of in in my city. We didn't try to house people. Well, we did try to house people for a short time. We we tried to feed people. We tried to meet some of those needs, but we called ourselves B-side community because we wanted to simply be a space where friendship and relationship could happen. And whether you were a doctor or a person living on the street, you could create a bond and a friendship there. And it was one of the most beautiful things. And I think it's because it's hard to quantify it's also hard to justify, I think, from like a government standpoint and a city right. standpoint and even like church people, you know, things like that. So I'm super excited that Ben and Scott, you're taking us in, in this direction with this conversation. I really do appreciate what Ben is saying to us today so very much. I think because and I don't want to embarrass you, Ben, but I have discovered, I have found overworking and just being with you over time, you really embody the things that you're saying about hospitality, care for the poor and marginalized very much. It's not just that work. This is something that you really breathe in and out of your life. I like it a lot. Human experience and encounter with God is such a great testimony to the living Christ among us today. And I want to say to our audience that we'll be moving into a new uh, territory of controversy a little bit. And sad to say that, but happy to say, because what we're going to get at is both central to the Celtic Christian movement of long ago, and very important to Ben Soy's relating to hospitality and to homeless people, and that is the scriptures as both his foundation and inspiration for the life that he lives. And I'm so looking forward to that very much.